If you have your Bibles, I encourage you now to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Last week we started 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And we saw how Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, excuse me, <clears throat> was exhorting Christians to endure the persecution, to endure suffering, right? point of first Peter to endure the suffering through the persecution that they have been facing and will continue to face and he tells them by tells them how to endure by giving them truths to keep things in perspective first that a Christian will suffer a Christian will face suffering second we know how a Christian is to put away sin and that there's this opposing worldviews between the world and Christians. And lastly, we know that in Christ we too might die, but yet in him we will be vindicated in the resurrection. Our passage this morning comes from verses 7 through 11. One of the things that we say often, and I might have even said it last week, is that you must remember that when you're reading in your Bibles that the verse numbers and the chapter numbers are not necessarily a part of the Scripture. They're not what was inspired or inerrant and, and, and things like that. They're not a part of the Scripture. They were added later to be helpful, helpful tools in helping us be able to find particular verses and ideas and things like that. And we can understand the helpfulness that we're the recipient that we have been the recipients that we're this said, turn to first Peter chapter four. You know where to go, right? Either to the table of the context or you flip right to it. Right? And you knew where to exactly go. However, they also can be a hindrance in reading and understanding the thoughts of the passage. Because a lot of times they break up the flow of thought, and they just stop, such as chapter 3 ends and chapter 4 begins, and in most of our Bible readings that we do, we would stop right at chapter 3, and we would not read into chapter 4 till the very next day, and we'll miss the, the flow of thought. Now, don't go throwing your Bibles away, right? Don't go throwing them away. Just learn to read it together. Learn the flow of thought. And, and this is one of those places this morning. Chapter 3 into chapter 4, there is this flow of thought all the way up to verse 11. And we see where at verse 11, as we'll read this morning, will be the end of our section, where Peter ends in a doxology. There's, so there's a, a good break in this section, right? It's not the end of the, the book. Or the letter, but it's the, the end of this particular section, the flow of thought ends. And so we're going to finish that this morning. Also, you'll see how verses 5 and 6 should work together with verse 7. There really shouldn't be a, a gap there. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to start reading in, chap in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Well, we can just kind of stop there, right, Ryan? Stop there. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, right? Here's where we listen. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I just had to read it that way, emphatically, right? It just goes well. That is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. A short passage this morning, but wonderful nonetheless. And I want to start off by asking a question. What if you knew, what if we all knew, what if the, the whole world knew, we all got the same notification at the same time, that an asteroid's coming and the world's going to end in six weeks and there's nothing that we can do? What would you do? How would you spend your last weeks, and remaining days. Brother Richard, I would dare to say you would not worry about taxes. <laughs> Where would you want to go? Who would you want to spend it with? What would you want to see? Where would you want to go? What would you want to do? So interesting questions. Our culture has been filled with asking these questions through apocalyptic movies and, and books and comic books for, and movie and TV shows for, for decades, causing audience to ask these same questions because we're all kind of fascinated by the end. We're all curious by the end, right? There, if there's a beginning, there's got to be an end. So what's the ending going to be like? In the 50s and 60s, movies had aliens invading the world, and that's how the world would end. In the 70s and 80s, it was nuclear war that would just end it all. In the 90s and the 2000s, it was asteroids and zombies. And now it's climate change and natural disasters as the dreaded ocean waters rise. Whatever it may be, in every one of those kind of movies and such, there's always this depiction of humanity, right? There's this depiction of humanity and how they are going to respond to such destruction. There's hopelessness, right? We see those who are hopeless. We see those who are sunken into despair. We see those who, who go wholeheartedly hedonistic to eat, drink, and be merry because in six weeks we die. We live in a very postmodern post-Christian, atheistic, nihilistic world. And outside of the planet, in a smartphone, people have no hope. So we wonder why there is such 
frantic craze of climate change because the planet is their only hope. I think we've seen glimpses of this panic through the pandemic. We see anger. We see depression. We see anxiety. But how would you feel? How would you live? How would you act if you knew that this was it? Now, I'm, I'm no predictor of the future. And I'm not telling you that the world is coming to an end in six weeks. Take note of that. Although there will be Kool-Aid after service. <laughs> How's it going? I put that one in parentheses for y'all. But I can firmly tell you in full agreement with the Apostle Peter who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is telling us very clearly, the end of all things is at hand. That is true. And just like if we knew that six in six weeks the gig was up and then we would reorient our lives knowing that this was the end, in the same way, brothers and sisters, as Christians, given God's word, we are given the knowledge that the end of all things is at hand. That's what our passage is about this morning. That's what our passage begins. That's what it's about. And in that truth and in that knowledge, summing up all the things of how we are to live and to endure and to be holy through suffering and persecution, the end of all things is at hand. And living in that knowledge, therefore, this is what you do. And what's really remarkable, on the one hand, is how extraordinary this thing is. He tells us the end of all things at hand. Like I said, we can stop there and just go, what did he just say? Like, what is this? What? we got to unpack that for a moment, how extraordinary that is and how that extraordinary that should be for our minds. But then what comes after is just so ordinary. What comes after is ordinary. You would think he would say, the end of all things at hand. So go live your life to the fullest. Go climb mountains. Go sail the oceans. Go swim with whales, etc. No. He says, be disciplined. He says, love one another. He says, be hospitable. Use the gifts that the Lord has given you. So simple. So simple. But that's our passage this morning with these four simple commands for Christians who are striving to endure while facing persecution because the end is near. And essentially, when you put it all together, he is saying, this is how you live faithfully together. This is how you live faithfully together. So look again at verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Remember I told you that it connects back with verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6 give us reference to the final judgment. All will have to give an account. Verse 6, how Christians are going to die but still will be vindicated in the resurrection. 
So we shouldn't be surprised then for Peter to go straight to the end of history. The phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Now to, to our modern minds, that sounds a lot like the crazy guy in Times Square wearing the sandwich board, screaming and yelling and passing out flyers saying, repent for the, king, for the, for the end is near. Peter is not that guy. He's not saying for us to go do that. He's not even making a prediction. He's not making a prediction that it's chronological, as if near means tomorrow or next week or next month. But what he is stating, he is stating something that is deeply theological. The reason the end is near, brothers and sisters, is because all the things he's already told us about Christ because Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection has inaugurated the last days of salvation history. The only thing left is for Christ's return. He's reminding Christians who are facing persecution with this great theological truth of the end, because it's at the end when Christ will return when your living hope will be realized and we will receive the imperishable inheritance. And he's telling you, it is near. So then these Christians and all Christians until Christ returns can be like how in the parable of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to return. That we would be eager. That we would be prepared and ready for him keeping those lamps burning. The end is uniquely a Christian view. This ending is uniquely a Christian view of history. With the crowned king who is exalted and reigning at the right hand of the father is soon to come back. And that it is near. God's plans are fixed. Though to those who are being saved, this is uplifting. And this is to be encouraging, but to those who are perishing, it is either devastating or just plain foolishness. Eschatology in the Bible is not given to us so that we could figure out dates and times, but rather it is to encourage us to live in a godly way and then to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Christ is coming. So local church, this is how you ought to live together. Here's the thing. Knowing the nearness of the end shouldn't cause you to be motivated to some new level of, rad of a radical form of Christianity. No, this call is to be normal, albeit distinct. It's a call to biblical Christianity that is faithful and committed to one another because we are mindful that this is the end. So because the end is near, therefore, this is how you should live. First, be disciplined. Those are my words. He says, the normal, everyday, good conduct of a Christian is to be self-controlled and sober minded. When Martin Luther was asked what he would do if the end was today, he said that he would probably plant a tree and pay his taxes. 
That sounds nuts, kind of crazy to us, right? But what he is saying is that a Christian all the way to the end lives faithfully unto Christ each day, self-controlled and sober-minded. Compare this call of discipline to the unbelievers that have given themselves over to sin back in verse 3. Given themselves over to their passions, to their drunkenness, to their drinking parties. That's not self-controlled. That's not sober-mindedness. But to be self-controlled means you are not controlled or manipulated by the desires of the world or the desires of the eyes, or the desires of the flesh. To be sober-minded is to have a clear head, to always be on guard, to keep a level head, and to always be thinking. As Rudyard Kipling said in his poem, If, if you can keep your head when, you are, when all about you are losing, their, are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Boy, does that speak to today. Last week when we saw the call to arm ourselves with the same line of thinking that Christ had in his suffering, we talked about how Christianity is an intellectual religion. It's a heady religion. It's intellectually demanding. Now, I'm not saying that uh, only those with a certain IQ can be Christians or else I would not be here. Those with a childlike faith come and believe in Christ and repent in sin. But yet Christianity, with its rich and its deep and its thick, glorious commands and glorious doctrines, reminds Christians all of the deep implications on how we live and how we understand who God is. We do not want to live like those who just want to escape reality and check out and to live only by emotions and feelings. This is why Peter is saying to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Who lived in Poland near Auschwitz, who resisted the Nazis and Polish collaborators to round up Jews and to put them in the deadly camp and to kill them. She resisted and she survived, and several decades later she was asked, How did you become so courageous in the face of such evil? And she responded, we didn't all of a sudden become courageous. We just decided not to go over the cliff of insanity like everyone else. We do not go over the cliff of insanity that our world is gripped in, flipping right into wrong and wrong into right, but we are to remain sober-minded and self-controlled. We keep our heads, we keep our self-control because we know the end is near. We know the end is near, and the end is playing out to the glory of Christ and to the glorification of his elect. Be careful then, brothers and sisters, what you take in. Be careful what you consume, because it may not intoxicate you physically, but it will consume your mind. Be clear-headed, as Peter says, for the sake of your prayers. 
People who lose their minds are people who do not pray. They panic. And Jesus is our wonderful example of what self-control and sober-minded is. When he prayed and he knew the end was near, he prayed and he relied on, he trusted in the Lord, he trusted in his Father's plan. The mark of a Christian who's following in the footstep of his Master and his Lord is prayer. And in these end times, because we are in these end times, we pray. And in our prayer, we are showing our self-control and our sober-mindedness, but also, brothers and sisters, as we pray, we are being self-controlled and sober-minded. These days we live in should move us to pray, to pray for ourselves, that we would be faithful, to be sober-minded and self-controlled, that we would not lose hope, that we would not panic, that we would fight fear, that he would be hallowed in all that we say and all that we do. And that we pray for those who, not, who yet not do not know the love of God and the gift of grace that comes through Christ in these last days. Number two in the ordinary list in this, in an extraordinary time, is to love one another. Look at verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I want you to notice very, very closely what he doesn't say. He does not say, love yourself. He does not say, love yourself. The tide of media, the tide of culture, the tide of movies and music and songs is rushing against you, convincing you to love yourself. Stand there in the shield of faith against that onslaught. Because that is not what the Bible says. He does not say, love yourself. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the exact opposite of being self-controlled and, so, uh, and sober-minded is loving yourself. That turns love into something that's not love at all. Love is not self-absorbed. Love is not narcissistic. Contrast that back again to verse 3. This is the love of the world. What do they have? They've given themselves over to lawless idolatry rather than sincere love. But the Bible calls the Christian to love, which is a love to come and die to self and to live for others, as he says, above all. Above all, love is the highest of all Christian attributes, to love Christ and to love one another. You cannot say that you love Christ and that you do not love your brother or your sister. Jesus says you will know them, that they are my disciples, by the way that they love themselves, each other. By the way that they love each other, one another. And we love 
because he first loved us. It is the gospel of grace, the unmerited favor of God given to us through salvation in Christ alone that drives our love for one another. Above all means everything we say and do for one another then is to come through the filter of love. And of course, the Apostle Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 13, that if I have not loved, then I have been a resounding gong. Love is the theme of the Scripture. It is the theme of the New Testament, and it's throughout 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. The gospel does what? It produces good works of fruit, of sincere brotherly love, to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been, what? Born again. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but through the imperishable, through the living, abiding Word of God. In chapter 2, he says, love the brotherhood. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. So keep loving one another because this love is ongoing. Keep loving one another. What you're doing, keep doing it. Keep it going. This love is not to ebb and flow. It is consistent by the grace of God because we have been given grace upon grace. Do you know then whom he speaks of when he says one another? Who is this one another? That's a very important question. Well, simply, it is everyone right here this morning and those who are sick and not here, right? These are the people that you owe love to. And that love for one another, brothers and sisters, is to be earnest, true, genuine. It's a love that does not withhold the truth. It is not flattering. It does not expect anything in return. We do not love for the benefit of ourselves, but at a desire for good of another, even at our own expense. This love is sacrificial. It's kind. It's compassionate. It's the good for one another. It's the kind of love that the gospel produces in each and every one of us for one another. I could continue to preach this point to you because we certainly always need to be reminded of this. But as one of your pastors, I want to acknowledge the evidence of God's grace. One of the reoccurring things that the elders hear from new members and petitioning members is yes to our doctrine, love for the scriptures, which are so important, but also right up there the things that they tell us the things that they write in their testimony is that they say the love that we have for one another and the love that they experience for them when they come. A love that is described as real, as genuine, and earnest. You all 
know how to love one another. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Are we growing in it? Yes. Is it happening? Yes. I believe y'all have done that in real ways to the glory of God. But as Peter says, keep loving one another. Keep loving. Keep showing and displaying the gospel and the beauty of our Savior to one another in how you love one another. But Peter picks a specific way in which the church is to continue and to keep loving one another. And that is, he says, love, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, understood properly, the, the phrase here is just beautiful. Clearly, he does not mean that our love for one another atones for sin. Nor does it mean that we shouldn't take sin seriously. Sorry, Rob Bell, your love does not win. Christ's love. But rather what he is saying is that one believer lavishes love on another despite the sin and the offense of another. Because they understand their own sin and they deeply understand the grace of God. This kind of love does not go around looking for the faults of others, but rather we think the best of others. We do not linger on their faults and the faults of others and the failures of others, but rather we forgive and we receive their apologies and their repentance. Yes, it is absolutely loving to tell a brother and sister who is ensnared in sin to repent of sin, but it is also the, this kind of love. There is a mark of a mature Christian who discernibly knows when to comfort and when to cover. Like a parent who is discerning about their own children, not to discipline and to always make a mountain out of a molehill and always to point every little thing in their children what they are doing wrong and what they're at fault of. Often as parents, good parents, they will just clean up the mess and they will move on. And that doesn't change, though, the feelings and the emotion that we have for our children, that we love them, and we even desire for their discipline. But we do not exasperate them with discipline. And why are loving parents like that? Because they know their children are not perfect. I'm not negating discipline because that needs to happen. But often we should love one another in this way, because love covers a multitude of sins. Number three, we must move on. In the ordinary list, in an extraordinary time, is we are to be hospitable. Hospital. Hey, the end is near. Be hospitable. Verse nine. It's exactly what he's telling us to do. Show hospitality to one another without uh, grumbling. What's a specific way to show love, to keep loving? Be hospitable. Be hospitable. Now again, compared to the world again, who has given themselves over to sin, verse 3, to live in sensuality, but as Christians, 
we give ourselves to hospitality to one another. Again, one another tells us how, and it tells us whom we are to practice hospitality, primarily within the fellowship of church members and Christians. You know, historically, hospitality was a distinctive mark of Christianity in the Christian community. Hospitality wasn't just a matter of convenience or fellowship, but it was necessary for the mission of the church. When a Christian missionary would travel, they needed places to stay. So hospitality was all about dependence upon one another. Hospitality was also vital in, the, in, in part of the gathering of the church each week. They didn't have buildings dedicated solely for meeting in. The church depended on loving Christians to open up their homes week in and week out without grumbling. That is something, brothers and sisters, we have experienced and that which we know. Did you know during Christmas when people put candles in their windows as decorations, that that used to be, used to mean something. It was a sign to weary travelers that this is a Christian home and you're welcome. You're welcome for food and you're welcome for lodging. Christians depended upon one another. Regular hospitality was necessary for the ongoing mission of the church. This is why the New Testament is filled with this call for Christians to be hospitable, such as in Romans 12. We'll read the full passage at the end, uh, uh, end of our service this morning, but Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. In Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The qualification for an elder in 1 Timothy and Titus 2 lists hot to be hospitable. So that as church leaders, they are leading its members in this trait. One of the consequences, however, of Western individualism has taught us to isolate ourselves from others. That our homes are our castles. And we design our homes and build our homes now in such a way that everything we need every day for everyday life is right there into our homes. I remember having a conversation with, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Nelson. And he, he said, you know, one of the biggest things that, that changed our, our country and changed the demeanor of the way that we see each other is air conditioning. Because in the evenings, people used to go sit on their porches and talk and hang out together. We rarely do that anymore because we have air conditioning as hot as blazes down here. But we understand the idea of being together, the importance of being together, to be in community together. Christian hospitality says that our homes are gifts to be used and to be opened up to share with others rather than just for a place of retreat. Hospitality, having others in your homes, it does cost us. It costs money, it, food and times and comfort and rest. Your guests might actually see the mess that we is hidden from Instagram. 
We all have those imperfections that we really don't want people to see. But brothers and sisters, in many ways, that's the whole point. Because we are not a perfect people. We share our lives with one another. And we do so without grumbling. You know, at times, I am a grumbler. I often grumble to my wife, but I'm also very thankful for her because she is very hospitable. We love having you all in our home, and she loves preparing meals and seeing the fellowship and the laughter around our table. Christian hospitality is not just about food, but it is about fellowship. It is meant to be far from perfect. It's very imperfect when a bunch of imperfect people gather. But it's about meaningful time together. Have you ever been the recipient of such hospitality? Uh, I have. And my family has. I'm truly thankful for Steve and Becky Norris. Chuck and Sissy Worley. Dawn and Kathy Renner, Dave and Denise Smith, and Brother Richard and Lori, who've pretty much adopted my little family when we moved here, and his son became my first friend here. Hospitality, brothers and sisters, is an act of Christian love that makes a huge impact that's hard to forget. Think of all the things that happen around the dinner table, on the porch, around the fire pit, on the couch, there's prayer, there's lots of laughter, there's discipleship, there's encouragement, there's teaching, there's evangelism, and there's counseling. Our hospitality does that. And our hospitality, brothers and sisters, it anticipates a day when we all will come around one table, the Lord's table. Beloved church, practice hospitality with one another Continue to practice hospitality with one another. Set a goal of hospitality with one another. And lastly, the fourth point on this list, brothers and sisters, is to use your gifts. He says in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So because this is the end, and we're near the end, use the gifts that you have been given the gifts that you have received to be a blessing. And as Peter puts it, he says, to serve one another. That's the third one another. No, we, we think this is an important thing he's saying here, right? To one another. Earnest love is welcoming and hospitable, but this, is, but this love does what? It also moves us to serve one another. And hospitality as well is serving one another. But he says, serve one another with the gifts that God has given to each of you in Christ. Now, we usually have called these the spiritual gifts. And they're spiritual because these gifts are given to each Christian by the Holy Spirit to serve one another. 
gifts of grace that we are to be good stewards of. But we also could call them gracious gifts because Paul's favorite word, and also used here by Peter, Paul's favorite word for these gifts is charismata, which has the root in it, charis, which means grace. These are gracious gifts, gifts given to us by grace. Now, these, these uh, gifts are often listed in the New Testament, and if you add them all together, there's about 20 of them, prophecy, teaching, serving, encouraging, leading, giving, etc. Yet the point is, does not necessarily have the most accurate list, but the point is, is to exercise those gifts, to use them. And Peter, he highlights on two, speaking and serving. Verse 11, whoever speaks as the oracles of God. Now, it means those who proclaim and preach God's words. That's the traditional meaning and interpretation of that. Those who proclaim and preach God's word. And we want to recognize that there is a giftedness to that. Not just a talent, but there is a God giftedness to that. We need God's word. And the Lord, by his grace, has gifted and has provided his word and teachers to lead us and to guide us in his word. Now, while it's the elders that have the primary responsibility and joy to teach God's word and to shepherd the church in God's word, they do so in order, as Paul says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that you can serve one another. And you can serve one another in the word of God appropriately. To do so by studying together, praying together, even counseling one another by God's word. This gift certainly applies to the elders and pastors and even the deacons, uh, the office of deacons in the church that serve, but also to all of those who are gifted, gifted by God in Christ to serve and to speak as the Lord gives the strength. Now this totally debunks the 80-20 rule church, right? Or the church we traditionally have heard of, where 80% of the people do nothing and 20% give and do everything. That, that's not what we see here. That's not, that's not a good rule. That's, a, that's what we call a tragedy. The way that I believe Christians should exercise their spiritual gifts is through everyday faithfulness of being a blessing to one another and serving and speaking. Each of us may have one or two gifts that the Lord has given us, given to us to regularly exercise among the body of Christ. However, there are those special times and needs that may arise for hospitality, for service, for generosity, and even speaking, when in normal circumstances you would not want to be the one to fulfill the role, but the Holy Spirit gifts you and leads you and guides you in those times to be generous, to be hospitable, and to share the gospel or to lead in a special way that's appropriate so that the needs of the body of Christ are met. The point is, use the gifts of grace through the strength that God supplies by His grace to speak and to serve the body of Christ. The things we do, we do by the strength of God to His glory. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has given you gifts to use to be a blessing to the church because if you are in Christ, then you are part of the body of Christ. Such ordinary things we are to do 
even though we know that the end is near. Give yourselves to self-control and sober-mindedness. We are to know for that our love for one another and to show the gospel that we believe and preach by loving one another and keep loving one another. To show hospitality for one another in the gifts that the Lord has given us and given to you in service of one another. This is what a Christian life looks like in the end times. And when a church is like this, can the world offer anything better? Think about that. They're spending billions to convince you of that. But look how Peter responds. And may we do so in the same way. In rejoicing. Knowing that the end is near, but yet we will continue in ordinary faithfulness to plant a tree and pay our taxes. Rejoicing that in everything, in discipline, loving, and showing hospitality, serving, and speaking, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.